Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the word of the Lord. You guys remember that uh, Saturday Night Live skit, More Cowbell? Anybody? I gotta have more cowbell, right? So I got so much to tell you because uh, some of you have been telling me lately, hey, I gotta have more history. Like you haven't been giving us enough history. So sorry if you're, you know, I don't know what to do. They gotta have more. So uh, more history for for these minor prophets. Um, and, And this is a great week to do it because as we um, get to uh, our book for this morning, which is Micah, uh, there, there's just so much to know that's happening in the world. So uh, it, it, if you do like history, this is one of the most intriguing kind of eras in, in world history. There's several kind of first empires that we see that are kind of on the, on the horizon, and, and, and so much of the world is, is just changing in front of Israel's eyes. Um, and it's actually a place where archaeologists are, are finding kind of the most artifacts of, of different periods, different places, but in this, in this kind of time of the world. And so, um, especially now, we're finding things about, I, I'd say, corroborating biblical stories of, of David and his descendants. Um, and one guy that we found out a lot about in recent years uh, is a king of Judah. His name was Hezekiah. Uh, Hezekiah is uh, relevant for this morning because his reign lines up with, with a, a certain part of time in, in Micah's ministry. And so, uh, if you'll remember, we always have in Israel bad kings. We've got the two nations we'll get to in just a second. But in the, in the southern kingdom, in Judah, there was a handful of good kings. And, and Hezekiah was a, one of the few good ones. Uh, we read in, in 2 Kings uh, that one of the things that he did was uh, to get rid of idol worship that, that had kind of gotten into Judah, and, and he tore down the high places. And, and if, I don't know if you've been like me, but you've always kind of wondered, what is a high place? What, what in the world is that? So, you know, it basically it was an altar built on a hill. Um, and, and they have recently found one of the high places that Hezekiah tore down. I think we've got a picture. So, th- so this, is, this was a high place. Uh, in an area of Judah that was literally tore down, uh, torn down, there you go, uh, by Hezekiah. And, and what was interesting was they repurposed these stones into different places in the wall, but all the rest of the wall was made with different stones that were different colors. So it was really easy for them to go, hey, look, these all fit together. And so they, have fa- they found these stones in an archaeological dig, and they're able to put them back together. This is uh, what it would have looked like. And if you look at the top corners, this is what we call a horned altar. And so sometimes it's like tear down the horns of Baal or, or whatever in Scripture. That's a horned altar, and that's what it uh, would have looked like. 
And so, um, again, notice kind of the unique shapes. Well, so Hezekiah had a, had a sense of humor, and I hope you appreciate his sense of humor. It's biblical, by the way. Um, one of the stones they found had been repurposed in a unique way. Um, th- this is an actual stone of a high place, one of the high places of Baal. Hezekiah had it torn down and turned into, you probably already guessed, a latrine of some type. Um, they found it and went, actually, this is a carved stone of the same stuff. This was one of the stones of the high places. And so you can, you can kind of gather with Hezekiah's thinking on this, right? I'm going to repurpose something that was used for idol worship, um, and I'm going to tear down your high place built to Baal, and I will desecrate it, if you will, right? Like his imagination on that one. So um, not too long ago, they found... Uh, what we believe is, is the first actual seal that belonged to a king. And so I think there's a picture of this. So everything required a seal back then, right, to show that it was official. This was the seal of Hezekiah. And I don't know how well you can see it, but there, the circle right there in the middle is the sun, and it had wings. And we know that that was Hezekiah's official seal. So uh, the winged sun showed the protection of God over the whole, the whole earth. So that's the idea here. Um, we believe this belonged to Hezekiah. Uh, the inscription, which I, I can't believe you guys can't read, um, says, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. So this is like legit, real deal. They found it uh, in, amongst the ruins of some things. But this would have been, if it didn't belong to himself, it belonged to one of his top officials who could you know, send letters on his behalf. So that's pretty cool. Um, just a couple other things, since you guys are, are liking this, just uh, that I think are interesting, and, and you guys want more and more history. If you've ever wondered what an Asherah pole looks like, um, they have found one. This would have been maybe the top of an Asherah pole. Remember, they always get torn down and smashed by the good kings. This one survived, uh, and again was found. Uh, notice there's all these different kinds of animals, and, and the Asherah... Um, was this like mother goddess in the Canaanite religions. Uh, some, some of the clans thought of her as like the wife of Baal. So you had Baal and Asherah. Some people think that's kind of, there's a lot of mystery about her, but um, this would be just something that was left of an Asherah pole. And again, they would put it on a high place and people would have, you know, prayed to Asherah here. And so these, these would have been torn down, but that's one that remains. Uh, they found another thing. Uh, I think there's a little... Maybe, yeah, so I don't know if you can see that. That's, that's a picture of a woman, and there's two babies um, that would be feeding uh, on this little thing. Um, Asherah kind of was like this like good luck charm of fertility. So women would carry little figurines like this around in hopes of becoming a mother. Um, we know that they held, it, held onto it during childbirth for protection through, through childbirth. And so this would be one of those you know, superstitions of another religion that that's, you know, the Israelites and, and, and Judah would have, would have taken and embraced. And God says, get rid of that stuff. You don't need those things. And so these are some of the things that Hezekiah would have been destroying. Um, okay, so one last thing that I think is cool. Um, that is uh, called the, the Sennacherib prism. Okay, and all of that that you can see on, on there is language that you can't and I can't read. It's Akkadian. 
It's from Assyria, um, and it contains lots and lots of history. I mean, it's got a bookload of information on it, uh, and it was written down by uh, King Sennacherib, and he was one of the guys who invaded uh, Israel and Judah and stuff like that. And so um, in this, it includes this, what we call the Siege of Jerusalem, uh, which uh, we'll talk a little bit more, I think, next week, but um, it, it, that's part of the tale of Hezekiah, um, who was one of the kings of Judah. And the Assyrian army comes to invade Jerusalem, and God is going to miraculously deliver them, if you're familiar with that story in Second Kings 18 and 19. Uh, I learned this week that this is actually on display uh, at the, what are they called, the Oriental Institute in Chicago. So you can go see this if you're interested in it. Um, really old piece of history, right? This is from 700 B.C. They found it not too long ago in, in, um, in, in Assyria. So, I, th- I think bib- biblical archaeology is really cool. Uh, one, because it, it confirms what we read in Scripture. The, the tales of Sennacherib actually line up uh, with what we have from Scripture. So you have an outside source confirming Scripture, which I think is amazing. And, and then the second thing I think I, I enjoy about it is it, it kind of helps me visualize that there were real people. Sometimes if I read a Bible story, I can think of it as way off in imaginary stories. This is, this is, these are real people, real events in history with real lives and real hopes and real dreams. And, you know, Hezekiah was a real person. Even though he had a, you know, middle school sense of potty humor, uh, he was a real guy, uh, you know. Um, and, and Micah was a real, a real man who had been called by God to speak truth to God's people, who were living in a culture that was struggling, where, the, the culture was rapidly changing all around them, and they find themselves going, where did truth go? Everyone around us is living as they see fit, right? As living, it was, it was right in their own eyes, it, which again has relevance to us. Well, how do we live in this culture that everything seems to be turning backwards all around us? This, this, Micah was doing the exact same thing. So, so that's why I think these more than just, hey, we're going to try to go through the minor prophets. There's value to see what these guys did and how they lived through these times. Um, so, there's a little bit of history. If you want more, you just keep telling me, and I'll just give you more and more, more than you could, would handle. So, uh, let's prepare our hearts as we prepare to study the book of Micah. Father, would you use your word that is faithful and true to, to speak to us, to inspire us, to help us know more of who you are, more of what you have done uh, in, in your plan of redemption and salvation for the world. Use this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read this morning, we're going to read out of Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. People will stream to it, and many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways, so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never train again for war. But each person will sit under his grapevine, under his fig tree, 
with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of armies has spoken. Though all the peoples walk in the name of their own gods, we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will assemble the lame and gather, gather the scattered, those who I have injured. I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. So Micah is a prophet uh, from a small town called Moresheth, which is southwest of Jerusalem uh, in Judah. I think we have a map. Uh, so it would have been kind of 20-ish miles southwest of Jerusalem there. So in the, in the yellow kingdom, the northern kingdom is the blue one there is Israel. Always bad, never does what's right. Yellow kingdom has Jerusalem, it's Judah. And that's where Micah is in, in this case. Uh, we know that his ministry is dated 730 B.C. to 690 B.C. So he's got about 40 years of prophecy, 40 years of ministry uh, to, his, to his, his own country there. So, so Micah would be uh, a prophet of his home, home nation. And uh, he, he is a contemporary of Isaiah. So, so they both are in an, almost the exact same time frame. Uh, they would have most likely been friends, known each other, worked together. Um, their messages at times are very similar, and even the passage we read this morning in Micah 4 sounds very similar to some other passages of, uh, in Isaiah. So, just, just uh, uh, quickly, Micah is a uh, prophet in Judah under three kings. Um, yeah, there we go. Uh, we've got, jo- so if you look at where it says 750, there's Micah, there's Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. There's question of whether he got to Manasseh or not, but that's for another time. So, um, Jotham was a, a good king, um, not one of a whole lot of relevance. We don't hear a whole lot about him, but we know he was a good king. Uh, and then his son was Ahaz, who was a terrible king. Um, he brought back all kinds of false worship, worshipped other gods. We know that Ahaz even burned his own son on the altar as an offering to Baal, uh, which is such a detestable thing to God. So Ahaz was, was one of the worst, one of the top two or three worst kings of Judah. And so then at the end of his life, his son Hezekiah becomes king. And Hezekiah is one of the top two or three best kings that, that Judah ever has. Uh, he destroyed all the stuff that his dad built, which is, you know, kind of interesting. But uh, he, he did his best to restore um, Judah into following God in a proper way. And then there's just so many amazing things that happened during this time that I, I could tell you about, but we're just going to kind of focus on, on two things. And, and the first is in 722 B.C. We've talked about it, right? The destruction. So if you look up uh, right in that, above that 750, you see that it says fall of Israel. The Assyrians totally wipe uh, Israel off the face of the earth. They're just gone. Um, He's in the southern kingdom. He gets to see that. He sees the destruction that happens there. And then we know famously in 701 B.C., so 20 years later, uh, Assyria says, hey, it's your turn, and they come after Judah. And and we'll talk some more about some of that campaign. But um, Jerusalem is miraculously saved in 701 B.C., from Assyria. 
And so this just gives you a little bit of context of, of where Micah is in the world as he ministers. Um, we've talked about the pattern that these prophets have. There's kind of this three-part message, right, where it's you've been unfaithful to God and, and you've broken the covenant that you said you would keep with him. Um, and then the judgment that's coming is part two. And then third part is, okay, this restoration and hope that's going to come because God will still be faithful. There, there's just a few things I want to tell you about Micah that I think are interesting. He is the first to prophesy that um, Jerusalem will be destroyed. So he's the first person that we hear uh, that, that they would have heard, hey, Jerusalem is going to be eventually destroyed. Uh, he, d- he says that in, in chapter 3, verse 12. He talks about a, pro- a problem that we still have today uh, in chapter 2, verse 11, which is where priests or pastors have this temptation to say what the people want to hear because it makes them more popular. Uh, and he, he kind of sarcastically says, hey, the, you know, the prophet of this age would be one who talks about how God just wants you to have pleasure and gratification. Um, there's your little summary of that. Um, but so again, Micah is this compilation of like 40 years of ministry. So it's, it's hard. If you just try to sit down and read Micah, you, you almost feel like you're, like I did yesterday, pulled and pushed and up and down on roller coaster of, wait, I thought we were, wait, no, we're here. Oh, no, we're going there. It's because it's, it's compiled many different messages over many different years. Um, and, and, and scholars still today kind of struggle to say, well, this is, this is the like flow, the structure of how it works. It, it feels very up and down. Um, Micah has seven chapters, so like I've been doing with several of these books, I can only kind of give you just a few of the big ideas. I can't really go over all the seven chapters. Um, but Micah's name is important. Micah's name means who is like the Lord. That's how it would translate. Who is like the, the Lord is like a question. Right? Who, who can be like this God? And so it's the first abs, ab, actual words of the book, Micah. So who is like the Lord? And then it's going to be, again, um, the, kind of the very last passage in, in chapter 7, uh, verse 18, where it says, he's going to summarize and say, well, who is like the Lord? I'll answer it for you. Who could be like this? And so his name is almost kind of used as a, as a riddle to help us figure out more of who God is. And so I'm going to give you just kind of three big points about his name, which is who is like the Lord. This book tells you three things. And the first one is what we just read in chapter 4. We're going to kind of walk through that quickly. Um, but it, it, so in Micah and, and other prophetic books, we see messages that have multiple fulfillments. And so some people think, oh, this is all somewhere down the road in history. Or some people think, well, this happened in 70-whatever B.C. Well, maybe they're both true, that there, there's kind of a fulfillment that's happened in their lifetime. They got to see it. And there may be a fulfillment that's hundreds of years down the road. Um, and so, so the prophets didn't abs- actually always know what they were, when they were giving these prophecies what it was going to look like or when or how many times they would be fulfilled. And so we kind of see that here in Micah. There's going to be multiple fulfillments. Um, so if you guys like the three points thing, we'll, we'll stick with that. Uh, this first point is that Christ will be king. So we'll just we'll call point number one, Christ will be king. And so as as we read there in, in chapter 4, uh, it speaks of the last days, which is actually starts that way, right? In the last days. A- experts th- think this fits the last days of Israel. They think it fits the last days of Judah. 
They think it's fulfilled in the New Testament and the coming of the Messiah. And some say, well, there's even still more prophecy, right? Because there's still war and there's going to be this peace that's coming someday. That's got to be, you know, kind of this earthly fulfillment sometime in the last days. So he says, in the last days, the, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains, will be, raised, will be raised above the hills, peoples will stream to it. And so this speaks of a time that, that when Jerusalem, and he's already said she's going to be destroyed, Jerusalem will fall, but it's going to be rebuilt. And people are going to come there and worship again. It's going to be a place of worship once again, even after it's destroyed. Verse 2, many nations will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. So just try to visualize this a little bit, right? This, this time of redemption and unity is people from all over the world will be drawn to learn about God and want to follow him. And some would say seems to have happened when the Messiah came, but maybe there's another one coming still where there'll be a, a time like that again. I'll let you decide for yourself what that looks like. But he says, they will beat their swords into, into plows and their spears into pruning knives. A nation will not take up sword against nation and they will never again train for war. But each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. Here we see an age of peace where, you know, things won't be used as weapons anymore, but, but tools for making society better. And everyone will feel secure. And again, I would say because of the Messiah, that's, that's come true. But there's probably more that is still to come. And so then in, in, in this uh, chapter 4, as we move into the verse, uh, verse 10, Micah predicts that Babylon will be the ones who destroy Jerusalem. Not Assyria, but it will be Babylon who destroys Jerusalem. And that they will take the people into captivity. And we know that that comes true. We'll talk about that uh, in a couple more weeks. But that will not be the end of the story. Judah will return. Jerusalem will be built again. Okay, so going into chapter 5, he, he's going to tell us more about what, how that will happen. And, and we, we're, we get to this kind of small passage that, that will be familiar to you if you've, if you've heard many of the you know, Christmas stories about the wise men and stuff, right? We find out that the Messiah is going to come uh, to be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. If you remember, the wise men say, hey, where's, where's the king going to be born? And they go, well, Micah says it was in Bethlehem. And so that's where they go. And so we get this interesting description in, in verses 4 and 5. It says, he will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. And so we get this big idea. The Messiah, the Messiah will be the king. This, this chosen one that's going to be of the line of David, that's going to have a, a reign forever. He's going to be the king. The king that they're all looking forward to. A king of peace who shepherds his people, who cares for them. This incredible image of, of what the Messiah will look like. So Messiah is going to be king. And then let's move to verse 6, if, or I'm sorry, chapter 6. And there's a trial. There's a trial taking place. God is going to put all Jews on trial and say that they're guilty. All Jews are going on trial. They're guilty. Um, and, and he tells them here, as we've seen elsewhere, 
that he is tired of their religious ceremonies where they say all the right things, they make all the right sacrifices, yet their lives are are ones of corruption and, and mistreating other people. Injustice comes up again and again through the minor prophets. He says in verse 7 of chapter 6, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Meaning, you know, he's kind of saying this, does God just want you to keep offering these things and just keep on doing bad stuff, but just keep thousands and thousands of rams to make atonement? No, that's not what the Lord has ever wanted from us. Verse 8, that you're familiar with probably. He has shown you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, this is an amazing little passage. One of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, I think. And and I think it's so well known because it's, it's so clear. What does God want of his people? This, right here. I'll give you, here's our three points, like we like it, right? And so for you, you know, analytical, engineer, logic, organized types, this is perfect. What does God want from me? Three things. I write them down and I can do them, right? Bullet points on the will of the Lord. If I can just do these three things, God will be happy with me. But what's the problem, right? Just live a life of justice, Be a person who shows mercy all the time and walk humbly with God, ongoing, forever. What's the problem? We can't do it. We can't do it. It's it's a great little verse. I wish I could keep it. I can't keep one verse in the Bible, right? Just one little verse. That's it. That's all I got to do. Now, there was a time in my, you know, preaching where, where I would have simply just given you this great sermon on Micah by just examining how to live out Micah 6, 8. And just said, here we go. This is it. This is what we got to do. And, and there is value to it. There is value to look at this because God says this is what he wants from us. How to act justly, how to love mercy, how to walk humbly with God. There you go. Three points summed up and we just go on. But, but as I have, have read through Micah and this, this amazing little, little verse, I think it falls under the second point, which I will just call Christ will be the judge. Christ will be the judge. We go on trial in chapter 6, and Christ will be the judge. And he says, look, verse 8 is the stuff I asked of you, and you didn't do it. None of you did it. That's all you had to do, the, this verse, and you didn't do it. And you and I know what we should do, and we're going to be judged for it. Just like Israel was, just like Judah was, they're both going to be destroyed because they couldn't do it. They they couldn't follow three simple rules. Christ will be the judge. And so as we go into chapter 7, I think we see something else. We know that the Messiah is going to be the king, and we have learned that he's going to be the judge. But that's not the end of the book. So if you've got your Bibles open still, I want you to look at, at Micah chapter, se- or, yeah, chapter 7. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. Remember I said his name Micah means who is like God. Here it is again. This is the conclusion of the book. Who is a God like you? There it is. 
It's Micah. Who is a God like you? What does it say? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever. And this is my favorite line. But delight to show mercy. You delight to show mercy. Not begrudgingly show mercy. You delight to show mercy. You will, will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. So Micah tells us that no one is like the Lord because he is king, he is the rightful judge, and now this final idea, this third point, the Messiah is a savior. The Messiah is a Savior who delights to show mercy. He delights in showing mercy. He will have compassion on his people. He will restore them. He will conquer their sins, it says. And then he will throw our iniquities into the sea of forgetfulness, if you like that uh, Mercy Me song, into the sea of forgetfulness. They will be gone forever. In the book of Hebrews, we saw just a, a few minutes ago this idea that, that God was doing a new thing through Jesus. And, and in chapter 11, right, the, the hall of faith, if you remember, there's all these characters who were amazing and righteous and had great faith before the Lord. There's a description of Abel. Remember the son of Adam and Eve, Abel, in, there at the beginning of Genesis. And it says that his, his death was righteous and that his blood still speaks of an offering to God in righteousness is an offering that demands punishment. In, in just one chapter later, just a few verses there in 1224, the author of Hebrews says this, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's comparing the two, right? And we, and we would say these are the two covenants. Under the, the first covenant, which is represented by this, this blood of Abel, it says that, that there is judgment coming. There's judgment coming. Abel's blood spoke of a judge, right? A king who was a judge, and that justice will be carried out. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than that. It completes the picture, if you will. Who is like the Lord? A Savior. A Savior who speaks a better word, who can bring about that beautiful picture of chapter 4, this, this world of peace where we all come to the mountain of God to worship and learn. That speaks, or sorry, seeks after God's truth in a world of peace and safety. Speaks a better word of a Savior who becomes king, who delights to show mercy. And, and, and a Savior, for a Savior who, who, who has that kind of love for his people, that love that's so amazing, so divine, it demands our souls, our lives, and our all. Let's pray together. Father, we, we read of the many sins that you record of your people in books like Micah. 
And we know that there is an even bigger book on our own. And under the, under the blood of Abel, we're going to have to pay for it. God, I'm so thankful that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Where that book of our recorded sins is thrown into the depths of the sea, never to be found again. That this judge delights to show mercy on those who trust in him as Savior. Father, would you remind us of that when, when our enemy tells us again and again all that we've done wrong. That there's no way that you could ever love us. That you, there's no way that we could be forgiven. That you would have turned your back on us because of our unfaithfulness. Remind us of this, this king who is a judge who delights to show mercy and show salvation. Father, let us come to that throne acknowledging who we are, acknowledging our frailties, our imperfections, but in confidence knowing that you will forgive us. Thank you, Father. We ask all this in the saving name of Jesus. Amen.